Welcome to Conversations in a Vintage Shop, a podcast from behind my counter between customers. Join me while I sit behind my retail counter and just have a conversation with you or with myself. While I look out the window, observe what I see, things that are happening in the store today, throughout the week, and just fun little stories that I have from my time as a business owner. This is something that you find interesting, and keep listening, and I appreciate you. Hey everyone, welcome back to episode, what is it, five? Season three of Conversations in a Vintage Shop, a podcast where I talk about things that happen inside my vintage store, and I record it during business hours. Lately, it has been after hours. I kind of cheated a little bit, but you get the concept. <laughs> I hope everybody liked last week's episode about the archive. I've been really excited to start bringing these pieces out of my storage and give people the opportunity to see them online and in person. And it's interesting that after filming that episode or recording that episode, I had a gentleman come in whose family has owned a costume shop for decades. And his mother recently passed away and he wants to reopen the shop after a lot of just not fun things have happened with the shop and money and all that jazz. He wants to unload some of their pieces because he's overwhelmed. I heard that he has six different estates with all these different costumes ranging from the turn of the century to the 90s and everything in between. He piqued my interest when he heard about my love of burlesque apparel and costumes. So I was really excited, and we'll see what comes of that collection. I know he appreciated looking at my archive. I did bring him back there to look at a lot of the pieces that I collect. And I'm hoping that some of those pieces will not only be up for sale, but also new additions to the shop archive. And I'm hoping I can do more episodes like that and delve into more of the history of all the pieces I collect. I went back after that episode and went to our humble little YouTube channel so I could watch some of the videos that I did because I couldn't even remember. I don't, I usually don't watch them after I upload them. (laughs) Maybe I should, I don't know. But it was fun kind of going back and when I recorded those, I think it was two years ago. All I know is it was during, I think it was during the shutdown and it seems like a lifetime ago, but if you want something to laugh at, head on over to our YouTube channel. I believe it's Carmine and Hayworth Vintage on YouTube. But anywho, the theme of today's episode is something a little different. And it's a topic that I've been thinking a lot about recently. And I talk to a lot of people that I meet and friends with, collaborate with. And that is the topic of the people you meet in business. Now, I always bring this back to the lens of being a vintage shop Any vintage seller, vintage shop owner knows that you meet a lot more people than you would at any standard, regular clothing or gift shop. I had one vintage shop owner tell me that we're almost like a magnet for the weird, bizarre, unusual, just we are the catch-all for a lot of different people. And that's not a lie. (laughs) But I've been thinking about in... The past few years, especially when I first started a brick and mortar retail shop, especially even going back to 2012 when I started on Etsy, the people that I've met and have worked with, which some people are amazing and great, but there are some people that you meet and there are certain types and categories that I'll break down who definitely make you learn your lesson. And I've seen some of my friends who are in different industries come across the same types of people. And I thought this could be a really helpful guide just in life, in business, a mixture of the two of people that you need to watch out for. It sounds nefarious, and it kind of is. 
So if that's something that piques your interest, stay tuned. Through these categories of people, the majority of these categories, I'm thinking of multiple interactions I've had. There may be some sprinkled in there where I'm thinking of a specific person, but I'm not going to name them. That would just be gossipy and rude. But I thought I'd start off with one that probably pisses me off the most. I say that now, but I'm sure there'll be another one that'll come up that will make me angrier. And those are what I call the creative vamps or creative vampires. Now, if you are a very creative person, whether you're a writer, artist, photographer, sewist, designer, I mean, you name it, you're always going to come across people who, whether they can come up with their own ideas or not, or just don't feel as confident in their work they are going to latch onto you and suck every bit of creativity that you have out of you and take it as their own. Now, in the past few years, I have met and worked with many people who, whether consciously or unconsciously, do this. And that can range anywhere from you come up with, let's say, a photography idea and you love it, you made sure to do your due diligence and that nobody else had done something like this, and you try really, really hard to be individual and also not rip anybody off. But then you have someone that you work with or are creative friends with in the same realm who sees what you're doing and replicates or duplicates what you are doing, your art, your ideas, and passing them off as their own. And again, this can manifest itself in any different way. But I think a lot of us who are more creatively minded have worked with people who can only get ideas through siphoning off them off from other people. And a lot of us, especially if you have ADHD like me and you get hyper fixated on something, this is an issue. And these are people that really grind your gears and bother you. And I've had this talk with a lot of people I know. And again, in so many different industries, it's not necessarily just in a creative industry. It can be in tech. It can be in food service. It really can be anything. And again, it's one of those categories of people that can leave you feeling really empty and drained And you feel a little bit like your worth had been taken. I don't know about any of you, but if you think back to when you were a kid, and let's say you wore something to school that you absolutely loved. For me growing up, we would go to Gordman's. Oh my gosh, what other stores were back when when I was shopping? I don't even want to (laughs) know. Like limited to, I don't know. But you, let's say you go to school and you have this awesome sweatshirt that you love and you think you're so individual and you have a friend that comes up to you and says how much they love that shirt. And the next day they come to school wearing the exact same shirt and they bought it because you had it and they really liked it. Now I know if you're like me and this happened to me as a kid and again, oh, I remember going to my mom and complaining and being so upset that anybody that I was friends with would dare copy me. And it's kind of that feeling. You try to be individual and you try to do your own thing and set your own path. And there are always going to be people that want a piece of that as well. And is it something to get devastatingly upset about? Of course not. Nothing's that deep. But it still doesn't erase the fact that it can be hurtful. And it can feel like you're spinning your wheels trying to set yourself apart but in this world, it's it's really hard to do that. But creative vampires are a type of person that you're always going to run into. Because as long as you're doing something different 
unique, forward thinking, there are always going to be people that are going to want to hop on that train. And the difference is everybody takes inspiration somewhere. It's very hard in this world to be original at this point in time in 2023. And I think a lot of us just ask, at least give credit where credit is due. Taking inspiration is a fact of life. Everybody does it, whether you know it or not. Hence why we have fashion. Fashion is built on inspiration and trends and repeating things from the past. But at least give credit. It reminds me of a saying. I believe this saying was from Oscar Wilde, but if I'm wrong, please correct me. And that's, imitation is the sincerest form of flattery. But what most people don't know is there's a continuation to that quote. And the entire quote is, imitation is the sincerest form of flattery that mediocrity can pay to greatness. And that's a ton-in-cheek dig. People who copy in his eyes, were mediocre. And they couldn't do great things unless they had to take it from someone of true talent or greatness. Now, does it seem a little bitchy? Sure. But I think that really lends itself to how a lot of people who come across creative vampires feel. (laughs) Doesn't make it sting any less. I do just want to preface this with a trigger warning. This next category is going to get a little bit deeper into the world of predators. So if anything relating to sexual assault is very troubling and triggering for you, you may want to skip this section. This category of predators is one that I choose not to tiptoe around. And for anybody that has been a follower of my shop, especially on Instagram for the past few years, you've probably caught some of my Instagram stories where I've talked about this, but I have had the unfortunate experience of working with a handful of predators in the art, creative, and fashion community. And sadly, I am by no means the only one. Almost everybody I've met has, in one way or another, worked with or come in contact with someone who displays this extremely dangerous and toxic behavior. But to preface some of my experiences, I want to read to you an article that really, really caught my attention and I think perfectly sums up everything that myself and those I work with and I'm close to have also experienced in this realm. And that is an article up on Vox.com. And this was written back in October of 2017. If I remember, I'll leave the link to this below. And the title is called The Dark History Behind Letting Male, quote, geniuses get away with bad behavior. Tagline, no, artists aren't above the rules. You're just reading too much Byron. This article was written by Tara Isabella Burton in October of 2017. Now, I'm not going to read this entire article to you, but I really, really highly recommend you read it. But I am going to pull some excerpts that give a little bit more context to what I'm talking to, but also I feel give a really great summation of a lot of things that I know I personally have experienced in the art and fashion realm. This article was written around the time that the Me Too movement started surrounding Harvey Weinstein. And for anybody who's not into pop culture, film, television, Harvey Weinstein was a huge movie and TV mogul, producer, and also world-class creep, predator, rapist. I could go on and on and on. So that was the the backdrop to this article being written. And one of the sections is called the artist wasn't always so quote above the rules. The cultural idea that the artist is somehow spiritually above the rules of common conduct, particularly when it comes to sexual mores is relatively recent. 
While artists might have been associated with immorality in their personal lives, hence why they say for centuries women were prohibited from acting on stage, lest they be exposed to the sexual corruption of the theatrical world, the culturally pervasive idea that artists shouldn't even be bound by morality is more recent. Now, this all changed in the 19th century when poets and writers and other artists entered the Romantic area. And this was the thought that creators are divine beings and godlike, that you have this overinflated sense of self that because of your artistic genius, that you were above societal societal rules and norms. The epitome of this viewpoint came from Lord Byron, who one ex-lover in the article said, described him as mad, bad, and dangerous to know. He had a propensity for drugs, young women, young men, and incest. And it's said that he exemplified in his life and work alike the kind of bad boy, womanizing, countercultural ethos that is now all but synonymous with being a tortured artist. Now, keep that that title in mind, because one of the most common titles I've heard from, and I mean, all of the artists that I've met who have been like this have been cisgendered males, not saying those are the only kinds out there, that is just what I've personally dealt with, as being tortured and tormented. And that's why their art speaks for itself and cannot possibly be judged under our societal rules. It's pretty disgusting. (laughs) Now, because people, writers, artists like Lord Byron saw themselves as special or artistic geniuses, all of these men thought that that really set them apart from all the regular, normal, everyday society people and rules, that their intelligence and creativity, again, made them divine, and that they were owed this sense of otherism. So another passage I want to pull out that really, really hit me, and it it was the reason why I I have always pinned this article. And it goes, of course, sex was part of, if not inseparable from, this mystique. Byron himself, as well as the Byronic characters that entered pop culture, seduced with reckless abandon and utter lack of regard for either societal pressure or, in many cases, for the desires of the women themselves. Sexual fulfillment was something these men were all but owed. These genius men were above the rules, while their conquests and victims, by contrast, are left to pick up the pieces. And that last sentence, especially, has been the underlying thread and the common denominator with a lot of the male artist predators that I've come in contact with. That because of their genius and just how tormented and what they were giving to our society, we as women owed them at the very least to give them pleasure sexually, mentally. That was the least we could do. That was our currency. And that was all that we were worth. And once they were done, we were no longer useful. And that's where that feeling of depleted worthiness really, really comes into play. Sadly, a lot of us have experienced that. This next excerpt is a perfect example of when these artists and predators use gaslighting to get what they want or shame those who resist their advances. And that's this logic, too, allows men who would persist in unwanted sexual conduct in artistic settings to set up a particularly pernicious dichotomy, resist the glamorous narrative of all-powerful art, of artistic genius, of a novel manuscript so powerful it demands the harassment, you know, to help flourish their creative mind. And you're throwing in your lot with the dull bourgeois human resources departments of the world. 
Sure, that subtext goes, you can demand to play by the so-called rules, but then what kind of artist are you? Gaslighting at its finest, my friends. And if that doesn't just hit you, and if you haven't ever come into contact with someone who's used that as a weapon, uh, it hurts. It really hurts. These predators also use the common term muse as their way to draw you in and make you feel special and that they can't possibly do their work without someone like you. And because you're their muse, you have to do everything in your power to help satiate them. Otherwise, they just creatively can't go on or function. And I pulled this quote from the article, again, that just really hit. I mean, such a well-written article. Female flesh is the reward for a male job well done, is not an uncommon cultural phenomenon in any field. But in the arts, that dynamic often takes on a faux spiritual aspect. Artists are tormented geniuses. Women, especially when they're muses, give them what little release they can find in this cold, cruel world. And I've heard this so many times. Male predator artists saying that you inspire me. You're my muse. You give me happiness. If you take that away from me, you're going to devastate me. So please sacrifice yourself so that I can feel better. While I also keep gaslighting you into the same horrific and toxic cycle. And this perfectly shows how this notion of because this artist is so tormented by their feelings and artistic thoughts, they can't possibly be held accountable for what they do. It's just in their nature. It's the nature of being an artist. And this reminds me of one of my first experiences, well, actually, no, two experiences um, that I had growing up. I was heavily into theater. I did some, not modeling, it was like hair shows because I have really thick hair and hairstylists wanted to use me in hair shows. And I remember when I was 12, going on 13, I was backstage at this style show and they had cut my long, you know, well, I think it was down to my back, thick auburn hair and cut it into this horrific bob with chunky yellow blonde highlights and thin, wispy, crunchy bangs and put me in these khaki pants, a white shirt and a red blouse and made me look like I was getting ready to go into the office. I remember crying in the dressing room thinking that I I look like a mid-level executive who hates my life. And that's exactly how I felt. I I had a picture. Disgusting. But this transformation made me look like I was much, much older. And I've always looked more mature for my age, especially when I was younger. But I was 12 and I was sitting backstage. I had makeup on by myself. I didn't know anybody. I had these two women that were, I think, in their early 20s who kind of tried to look after me a little bit because my mom wasn't allowed backstage. I was all by myself, which that is a whole other topic of how predatory industries like that are. But I had a man who was also in the show come up to me and start hitting on me. He sat next to me, asked, oh, are you a student? What college do you go to? You look really nice. And, you know, just laying it on. And he asked how old I was. And I look at him and go, I'm 12. And the look of horror on his face. And he slowly backs up and goes, oh, wow, you're, you're the age of my daughter. I'm in my 40s. And he scurried away very quickly after that. So luckily, he left me alone. But had I been of age, I don't think I would have been able to get rid of the guy. Then I also remember when I was in high school, and I don't remember if it was my junior or senior year. I Actually, no, I was in the ninth grade. I was one of the middle school kids that got a role in our high school production of South Pacific. 
Again, this is a whole other topic. They spray tanned me to make me look Polynesian. Let that sink in for a minute. But I was a younger girl. I mean, when you're in the ninth grade, how old are you? Was I 16? I can't remember. Somewhere around there, maybe 15. And I was standing backstage and this male actor came up and this was the time of flip phones. At that time, if you were wealthy, you had a flip phone and this kid was wealthy. And all of a sudden, I'm talking to one of my castmates and I felt something slide down the back of my pants. And I turned around and this male actor had taken out his flip phone, opened it to the camera, slipped it down the back of my pants. And when I slapped him away, he goes, oh, it's okay. I'm an artist and my phone Shaniqua just wants to get into your pants. Yeah, he named his phone Shaniqua. I don't know why. Don't ask. I, I don't know. But in these artistic scenarios at such a young age, I already saw what can happen. <laughs> and I I got lucky. That was the worst of what at least my immediate memory can recall. But it shows that there's this bravado and this narcissism with these male cisgendered artists that really dwarfs everything else. That sense of entitlement to your body, your mind, your energy. And it's disgusting. And even working in my brick and mortar shop right now, I've come in contact with people in film and photography that have been just as disgusting. I've worked with two male photographers who predominantly prey on younger, who they see as more impressionable young women and try to get them into scenarios that they have no one advocating for them. And these men try to see how much they can get away with. And there's one such photographer who I luckily didn't have to work with very much. I was at one shoot and I knew enough just to stay away. I'm in my 30s. I've seen it. You just start to get that skin crawling feeling and you know what's happening. And I remember a friend of mine was doing makeup for this photographer and he had a young girl. I think she was maybe 15 or 16. All I know she was underage. And he brought her to his apartment. And this girl, young girl's mom was there. But from what I heard, the mother wasn't as, I, I guess, careful, didn't really seem to care, and didn't really want to be there, and said she was just going to go out for a smoke, and she'd be back later. Leaving this makeup artist and this photo male photographer who was well into his 40s with this very young child. And... He got her into lingerie and was taking very suggestive pictures of her because he knew he could. Her mom was gone. And it just shows that this, this is such a common theme. They use the lens of, I'm doing art. This is art. It's artistic, so it's okay. Well, that's what Woody Allen has said. Harvey Weinstein. Roman Polanski. They use their art as a cover for their predatory nature. It's disgusting, and it's in every industry, but especially in the arts. They use it as leverage. But I highly recommend reading that article. But if you're in a business, especially a creative business like mine, Know, know the telltale signs, the pushing of boundaries, that innate sixth sense that a lot of us have, that when something doesn't feel right, it's not right, and to trust that instinct. The gaslighting, especially if you hear the term muse, if you hear 
the term muse, turn out and walk away. I hate when male artists use that as a way to draw people in. You're my muse. You should be honored that I could dare take someone like you out of obscurity and immortalize you in my art. You. So if any male artist says you're his muse, run. (laughs) Run, please. It's sad, but I can think of so many stories, not just of people I know and work with, but of experiences I've had that you never forget. And they really do affect you for the rest of your life. So if this can help any of you out there listening, whatever the circumstance or the scenario, just trust your instinct, trust your gut. Because your first instinct is usually never wrong. And you get that physical reaction for a reason. And take it from someone who's learned the hard way. Trust yourself. Trust yourself, please. is a little bit more uh, all-encompassing. And those are what I call the category of the takers or the leeches. Now, this is slightly different from the creative vampires. Those are people who want your creative energy. They want your output. Now, the takers and the leeches are people that are coming in from more of a business side. People who want to use you for your connections and start off on the level that you're at so they can skip all the levels below. They want to go along with you for the ride without actually having to be the driver. They want to be in the back seat. And then the moment that you get, they get to the stop that they want to be at, they kick you out of the car and keep going. <laughs> you may th- Think of that as, you know, the social climbers of the world, the people that will do whatever it takes to climb up the ladder and step on whoever they have to, to get to where they want to be. But some of the people I've come across in recent years are people that they see that, okay, you have an interesting business. They like how you do things. They like how you get things done. They want that. And what they'll do is they'll attach themselves to you somehow by either saying that they're a really good customer of yours or they really emulate the way you do business and look up to you. But that's to get their foot in the door. So at a point, you'll start to feel guilty if they ask for your help and ask for your advice and you feel that sense of obligation to help them and take them with you. It's people who weaponize your good your good feelings and your need to just want to help. I know being a small business owner, I started my shop with the money I had in my pocket, my bank account. I worked side jobs. I did freight. I'd work at five o'clock in the morning, get off at two, and then go to my shop and list things online. You hustle. You do what you have to do to make it. And there are people that they don't want to go through the nitty gritty. They want to go from A to Z and skip the alphabet in between. They don't want to go through the steps. And I've had people in my shop who have done just that. They've started as, and you can't see me quote, like using quotes as customers, who they get in, you feel bad, like you they buy stuff from you, but they use that as a weapon of, well, I've bought stuff from you, so you owe it to me to help me. And that'll turn into, can I do a pop-up shop in your store? To, okay, well, I did a pop-up shop, but I really think I should open up a business in your store and we can go in it together. We can be partners because let's face it, you need me. 
It's those takers. It's almost like invasion of the body snatchers. It's if the leech attaches itself to you, says it's going to help you. They're going to bring you things and opportunities that you wouldn't otherwise have. And then when your guard is down, they take over. And you also get a lot of that. I have experienced this many times. And these are the people. And pay really close attention. I know a lot of you, if not all of you listening, have encountered someone like this. These are the people that have the biggest problem when you enforce your boundaries. The moment you say no, all hell breaks loose. That is the worst thing you could say to them. And that's when they start to weaponize everything. I was a customer. I helped you. I told people about your shop. I told people about your art. I told people about your music. And you're really going to say no to me? Look at everything I've done for for you. And the least you could do is help me. Why do, and I've had people tell me this, why do I have to struggle? Because you did. You should just let me climb on your shoulders. You should boost me up. You should prop me up. That's the least you can do. And what a shameful way to guilt people into helping. (laughs) I mean, because it's true, not everybody's going to struggle the way you did, the way I did, the way some of us have to. Everybody's different. Everybody comes from different opportunities. But to use that as a weapon against someone so that they will help you, it, it really feels like a hostage situation, really. And these are people that you come across all the time, and they are the ones that change on a dime. Put up that boundary, you're going to see a Jekyll and Hyde moment. And it goes back to your instincts. Helping people is one thing. But when people try to latch on and take over things that you've done as their own, and try to make you believe that you would, like, you should owe your success or what you've done to them. Even in reality, when they have been a minute part of your journey, <laughs> it's delusional. But there are a lot of people out there like that. And you'll come across them if you haven't already. But the one thing I want you to draw from that is don't let anybody make you feel like you owe them anything. You don't owe anyone a thing. If you build something and you do the work and you build from the ground up, yes, there are some people that have helped you along the way and there are people that want to believe that they helped you or were a part of that success, but you were the one that got yourself there. And don't forget that. So rip off those leeches, you guys. Chuck them back in the river. And move on. It's painful, but it's absolutely necessary. Now this next category is an amalgamation of all of the categories. People in this category display a little bit of each, and those are the controllers. Now, when you first start a business or you start a new venture or creative endeavor, it's really common to meet people who have been in the business a little bit longer than you. And those are definitely people that you take notes from, you take cues from, you go to for questions, you trust that they know what they're doing. And a lot of times you find people that really just want to help. They want to give you advice. They want to do true collaborations. But then you get the other section where there are people who want to control a situation and almost show their leverage of, well, I've been in business a year longer than you. So I know what's happening. I know what I'm doing. And 
they take that and use that as almost a shield to not have any accountability for decisions they make and how they treat people. And I've worked on several collaborations since I've had my business back to 2012. Like this isn't something new, (laughs) but I've worked with people who definitely leveraged their supposed experience not necessarily in my field because the people that have done this and that I've worked with aren't, weren't even in the same field that I'm in. They're not in retail, vintage, anything like that. But still thought that because they had a bigger following or they had more connections that they knew better, which meant that my feelings and feelings of the people that we were working with weren't as valid as theirs because we were too green and we didn't know any better. And people like that want to control the situation because it makes them feel better about their situation, their business, whatever is going on with them. If they can take control of someone else and someone else's vision, that gives them the strength to feel better about themselves. And you see that a lot in life too whether it be a friendship or a relationship, power over someone else. There are people that feed off of that. I was just watching, I've been re-watching the entire Supernatural series. And I was just on, oh gosh, am I on season nine right now again? But they go to this van, I think it's called the Van Ness Mansion. And there's a ghost that if you don't follow what he does, if you don't do what he wants you to, he will, you as a ghost, take your energy and take your life force and it'll make him stronger. And I've met so many people in my years of doing this. And they have a little bit of that creative vampire in them. They have that predatory behavior where they try to prey on people that may not have as much influence or confidence to stick up for themselves because they are perceived as being at a lower status or lower experience. They have a little bit of the taker. They want your energy, your greenness, your joy. What do they call it in French? Joie de vivre. They want that excitement because In any business, you start to lose that after a while, and it's hard not to get jaded. So you want to take that from people who haven't hit that point yet. And what I found with these people is that these are sometimes the worst kinds because they hit you at all of the different levels. They hit you at a business level, at a personal level, at a creative level, and they take little pieces everywhere. And I had one such experience, and I've talked to some people I've collaborated with about this, but I had a collaboration with someone, and this was years and years ago, where I was expected to do a lot, come up with a lot of the creative ideas, come up with places to do shoots at, and the person who had more experience than me in their field was constantly using that as a weapon against me. And if I spoke up about something that didn't seem right, they would quickly chime in, well, I've been doing this longer. I know what I'm doing. I'm the one that's had a business for for longer than you have, which is valid, but doesn't mean that what I'm feeling and calling out isn't right. And there are always red flags that show up. And this particular individual, I remember talking about a friend of mine who was in a similar industry as they were, and they had done a collaboration with me not long before the current one, and this person just degraded them, knocking them down, saying that because this person went to school for what they did, then they're not really a real artist that real artists don't ever have to be taught. And in this particular field, there are things that school does help you with. But just little microaggressions 
that added up to this person just didn't feel great about where they were in their situation, maybe their ideas. And instead of just letting other people in and accepting help, it was much easier for them to revert back to shaming. Now, this particular experience I had, if I go into too much detail, it'll give away too much information, but it was something that, like, this was a whole day-long experience, and I don't want to get too far into the weeds, but it was definitely a day where I had to step back and figure out how I wanted to advocate for myself. And I was lucky enough that day to have one of my friends who is a at the time was a small business owner, had a very successful business there with me, assisting me that day. And even at the beginning of the day, I remember her telling me, Courtney, don't let her treat you like this. Like what, what she's doing and what she's saying to you is not okay. And I'm just letting you know, I support you. And that meant so much. It showed me that even when you work with people or come across people in your work, business, personal life, who are trying to beat you down, trying to break you down to make you more pliable for their needs, you need to surround yourself with people who are looking out for you. And no, they can't do all the work for you, but you need people that are going to stick by you and show you that you can advocate for yourself and you're not wrong. And it's an experience that really, it still sticks with me to this day, which is why I've talked in previous episodes, when I do collaborations, I'm so careful about who I work with. Because I have seen what happens when you let certain people in who are not looking at a true collaboration, they're looking at more of a power grab, and they're looking for someone just to be their their side piece. And you really have to, I mean, just personally as well as in business, you have to be careful who you surround yourself with. Because there are people out there that are all of these categories. And I'm sure I could stretch out more categories. <laughs> like you meet a lot of different sorts of people. But the lessons I've learned through all of these different categories is just trust your gut instinct, trust your first instinct. And I know those of you who are in therapy like I am, you hear that a lot. Boundaries. Your first instinct isn't wrong. You're feeling that way for a reason. And yeah, we all have to learn some way. I mean, the the lessons I've learned through all the people I've come in contact with have been invaluable. And I wouldn't change it for anything. As much as it sucked and it was painful at the time, you really learn what to look out for. And then you learn how to advocate for other people too. Experiences I went through, I've already been through them. I can't change that. But what I can change is how I choose to look at them. And if I see it happening to people around me, then I know how to advocate for them. And I know what to say to them because it's something I wish someone would have said to me. What I'm hoping is that me talking about this will just give you all a little bit more confidence when you feel like you're in a situation where someone is trying to take advantage. And just know that you're not the only one who goes through stuff like that. It's just more amplified when you're in a business because there's a lot more at stake. It's not just personal feelings. It's your livelihood. And it makes you feel just that more vulnerable. It's like an open wound, (laughs) which is why a lot of us are super hyper vigilant about who we let in. And with people that I've met that are in these categories, that's exactly why. And I just hope that even can give some of you just a little bit of confidence to just trust yourself. And you're not wrong. What you've been through isn't wrong. And you have people like me who support you. And just remember that. Now, I know this episode has been a little bit of a change from last week's episode on the archive. But I just love talking about this, you know. 
For those of you who don't know, when I originally started at NDSU, I was going into psychology and sociology. So this is something that I like talking about because it's not my job. <laughs> so I just like talking through this process. But next week, we are going to be taking a break. So there will be no new episode next week. It's a great chance to catch up, fill in the holes where you haven't already listened. But then after that, I do know what episode it's going to be. And it's going to be 10 things I hate about being a vintage shop owner. Now, I have to preface that with, I love my job. I love my shop and I love what I do. I wouldn't want to be doing anywhere else, anything else. It's my dream job. But if you have to make a list, and this is more of a tongue-in-cheek list. This is definitely one. <laughs> and this past weekend, I, I definitely had all of these instances happen. And it just inspired this episode. <laughs> so next week, we're taking a break. But the following week, you can listen to 10 Things I Hate About Being a Vintage Shop Owner and let me know what you think. Maybe some of these things are, are experiences you've had in your jobs. It's definitely very service industry related. But I thank you so much for listening. And I hope you enjoyed this episode. And we'll see you next time. Bye.